Welcome to another week of this week in government enforcement. As always, from Thomas, joined by Tom Firestone, um, proving my friend Tom wrong that I own a tie. I figured I'd dress up like a lawyer today. Um, he accused me earlier on of actually not owning a tie, and it, it was fair grounds for him to make that accusation. But like always, I will not let a baseless accusation go without being proven wrong. So here we go. Um, so we got a great episode for you. Um, I'm going to talk real quick about um, the SEC's report. Uh, uh, late last week, uh, uh, that uh, its whistleblower bounty program and the payouts crossed $1 billion. And specifically, I want to focus on some of the aspects of the um, $114 million payouts to two whistleblowers that crossed them over that threshold and some unique aspects about that payout. I'm also going to talk about real quickly the SEC versus Diakar Malu um, insider trading case, some uh, interesting things in there. It's a tip or tippy case, but in particular, there are some um, sort of, uh, you know, more modern or nuanced issues I want to make sure you guys are all following. And then um, uh, Tom is going to uh, kick us off today by talking about the U.S. versus Michael Sussman indictment, um, 18 U.S.C. 1001. I, I, I call that the, the false statements um, charge under the uh, United States Code. Um, but I'll let Tom get into that in more detail. So maybe I guess, Tom, you want to kick us off? Sure. Thanks, Jerome. Um, yeah, the Michael Sussman indictment is really a fascinating case. This is charges that were brought at the end of last week against Michael Sussman, who's a prominent D.C.-based cybersecurity lawyer until recently with a major international firm here in D.C. He was indicted by the John Durham investigation for allegedly lying to the FBI in 2016 when he provided information to the FBI general counsel about um, alleged connections between the server of a Russian bank that was uh, supposedly in contact with the Trump organization, um, the Trump campaign. This led to a lot of um, speculation in the media about um, the alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. Um, the allegations were subsequently proven, investigated by the FBI and proven to be um, untrue. Nevertheless, he has been indicted in this case. Now, the He's been indicted again by the John Durham investigation. The Durham investigation is the investigation that was um, commissioned by the Trump Justice Department to investigate the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation. So Durham is an investigation of essentially the Mueller, what turned out to be the Mueller investigation. The Durham team has been working for longer than the Mueller team worked. And so far they've brought two sets of charges the Sussman charges and previous charges against a former FBI agent, Kevin Kleinsmith, who pled guilty to a 1001 violation. Now, what's extraordinary about the Sussman indictment is not just that this is a very prominent, well-respected former DOJ prosecutor um, who has been indicted, but among other things, he's not indicted for lying about the content of what he provided to the FBI. He's uh, indicted for allegedly lying about on whose behalf he presented it. According to the indictment, he said, I'm not here on behalf of any client. And the Durham team has taken that as a material misrepresentation, warranting 1001 charges. Um, in the case is also, the indictment itself is also quite um, striking in that it's itself seems to lay out why this is a weak case. So without even hearing from the defense in this case, just reading the indictment, it seems like there are some serious problems with these charges. And I wanna talk about those, um, those for a, um, 
for one second. So again, the, the, the allegation is that he went there, he presented this information to the FBI uh, general counsel, then uh, James Baker, who, um, and, you know, had collected information from various researchers about these alleged connections between the, the uh, Russian bank server and the Trump campaign. Um, he said he was not there on behalf of any client when, in fact, according to the indictment, he was actually acting on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Now, one thing reading the indictment that jumps out is how apparently weak the proof of this alleged misstatement is. According to the indictment, the evidence against Mr. Sussman seems to be based solely on a recollection of the meeting by Mr. Baker, the then general counsel of the FBI, and contemporaneous notes of his assistant director, the FBI assistant director of the counterintelligence division, based on a conversation between Baker and that assistant director after Baker's meeting with Sussman. So it's not even clear whether or not these notes are admissible. They could well be ruled inadmissible hearsay. They might get in under a business records exception. It's not even clear whether or not the notes are, um, are admissible. But even if they are admissible, according to the indictment itself, they don't really seem to support the theory of the case. Um, paragraph 29 of the indictment says, quote, uh, these are the, the notes of um, the post-meeting conversation between Baker and the assistant, um, assistant director of the FBI about the Baker-Sussman meeting. It says, quote, Michael Sussman dash said not doing this for any client, period, represents DNC, Clinton Foundation, etc. So it seems right there, the very notes that the charges are relying on suggest that Sussman did make clear his connection with the Clinton campaign um, in this meeting. Um, in addition, the indictment also points out that in 2017, Sussman himself testified under oath before Congress that he had, in fact, you know, uh, told the FBI general counsel that he was there on behalf of um, on behalf of his clients. So basically, it seems to come down to Baker's recollection versus Sussman's recollection, and the notes that Baker provided to his assistant director are at best ambiguous and suggest that. Um, Sussman did, in fact, indicate on whose behalf he was there. Now, the other issue that's interesting, even if, uh, even if that can be established, that Sussman denied that he was acting or falsely represented that he was not there on behalf of any client, is the materiality issue. Of course, 1001 doesn't apply to just any false statement of the government. It has to be a material misstatement. Um, here's what the indictment says in part about why the statement about who's on whose behalf Sussman was there was relevant material, not just relevant material to the FBI's investigation. The indictment says Sussman's false statement was material to the investigation because, among other things, it was relevant to the FBI whether the conveyor of these allegations was providing them as an ordinary citizen merely passing along information or whether instead he was doing so as a paid advocate for clients with a political or business agenda. Had Sussman truthfully disclosed that he was representing specific clients, it might have prompted the FBI general counsel to ask Sussman for the identity of such clients, which in turn might have prompted further questions. In addition, absent Sussman's false statement, the FBI might have taken additional or more incremental steps before opening and or closing the investigation. 
The FBI also might have allocated its resources differently or more efficiently and uncovered more complete information about the reliability and provenance of the purported data at issue. Now, this is strange because, again, the recipient of the information is the FBI, the greatest investigative organization in the world. Um, the evidence, as I've mentioned, indicates that he did disclose that he was there on behalf of the DNC, the Clinton campaign. His uh, firm's uh, connections to the Clinton campaign were well known. And of course, the FBI could have figured this out. Uh, the FBI is used to receiving information from interested parties all the time. Parties come in, they provide information. They may not disclose on whose behalf they're providing the information or their motives. Nevertheless, this is, I'd say, a lot of the confidential informant information the FBI receives comes from people who have a personal motive. Nevertheless, the FBI takes that information for what it's worth, and then they seek to corroborate it. They investigate it. They determine whether or not this is worthy of investigation. Is it really the case that the FBI would not have investigated this had it known where the information, had it known who... Uh, who um, Sussman was working for, given the serious nature of these allegations about collusion between a presidential campaign and a foreign um, government, presumably this would have been deemed worthy of investigation regardless of the source, because even an interested source could be providing infor important information about criminal activities. So it's, it seems um, a little bit of a stretch to say that this is material, especially when the indictment also points out that the FBI's investigation of the allegations concluded that there was no, no evidence, no, insufficient evidence to support them. So it seems hard to show what seem, it seems hard to establish how this negatively influenced the FBI's actions in the wake of the statement. Now, the treatment of materiality in this indictment is especially um, puzzling when one compares it to the position that DOJ took in seeking to dismiss the 1001 conviction of Michael Flynn. Flynn, of course, was convicted, pled guilty to making false statements to the FBI in connection with their investigation of the Trump-Russia um, uh, alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. He made misstatements about his conversations during the transition with Russian officials about the possibility of lifting sanctions and other matters of U.S.-Russia relations, which was, of course, the very subject of that investigation. Nevertheless, DOJ took the position that his conviction should be vacated because Flynn's misstatements were allegedly not material to the investigation. Here's what they said in that case. 1001 requires a statement to be not simply false, but, quote, materially false, with respect to a matter under investigation. It requires more than mere relevance or relatedness to the matter being investigated. It requires probative weight whereby the statement is reasonably likely to influence the tribunal in making a decision re determination required to be made. The materiality threshold thus ensures that misstatements to investigators are criminalized only when linked to the particular subject of their investigation. Um, and in this respect, it cites a case finding that um, a false statement about a date and uh, date and location of one's birthplace in an immigration application were not material because they were not qualifications for citizenship. So it's setting a very, very high bar for materiality. The DOJ brief in the Flynn case goes on to say, 
And the materiality threshold prevents law enforcement from fishing for falsehoods merely to manufacture jurisdiction over any statement, true or false, uttered by a private citizen or public official. It is, to say the least, hard to reconcile that position on materiality with the position on materiality taken in the Sussman, um, Sussman indictment. So we'll have to see how this plays out in court. There may be more to the case that isn't in the indictment, but the indictment does certainly suggest that there may be issues of, of proof and as well as issues with meeting the materiality threshold. Query as a result of this indictment, what effect it may have on people um, and lawyers presenting information to uh, government enforcement authorities. Um, we have all presented arguments. We've all presented information on behalf of clients. Sometimes we have to do that anonymously because the client does not want to be identified. Now, we never lie about on whether or not we're presenting the information on behalf of a client, but we are also not required to identify the client. I wonder if in the wake of the Sussman case, um, lawyers, representatives of parties are going to be more reluctant to go in with potentially incriminating information to enforcement authorities. And I think this relates directly to the subject of your talk today, Jerome, about whistleblowers and how the SEC seems to be wanting to encourage whistleblowers and advertising how much is paying whistleblowers. At the same time, DOJ seems to be taking, the, taking a very, very harsh position on um, those who come in as whistleblowers, as reporters, and don't identify um, their clients or claim, as Sussman is alleged to have done, to be acting not on behalf of a client. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, 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 the phrase chilling effect, you, you, you sort of hear that thrown around a lot, but it seems like this case could have and probably will have some type of chilling effect on just how willing anybody, frankly, was going to be to go to the Department of Justice if they seem willing to take what largely is an immaterial fact and use it as a basis for criminal prosecution for a false statement to a government agent. I mean, that's one of the most serious charges there are. Absolutely. It's an extremely serious charge. It is obviously a criminal charge. And it seems in this case to, A, not even be clear from the face of the indictment whether or not he said that. Um, we've got conflicting evidence presented in the indictment on that. Secondly, it is hard to see how this is really material to the FBI's investigation. Uh, even if they knew, even if he said explicitly on whose behalf he was presenting it, I find it hard to believe that they would not have run this down given the nature of the allegations or that they would have done things significantly differently as a result of that. It's not like he lied about, oh, we've collected this information that the Trump campaign and the Russian bank server and regular communications, and that was fabricated. If that were the case, yes, of course, that's an absolute 1001 violation. But he's not alleged to have misrepresented the nature of the evidence just on whose behalf he was acting. Yeah, yeah. In interesting, scary and interesting. Th thanks, Tom. Appreciate that. So I want to talk quickly about the SEC's announcement on uh, September 15th that it had uh, now paid out uh, more than one billion in whistleblower awards to 207 whistleblowers, um, and that, in fact, in fiscal year 2021 alone, the agency had paid out 500 million in whistleblower awards. Look, the SEC is clearly on a mission to make it clear to everybody out there that they are in the business of receiving complaints from whistleblowers about potential securities law violations, and they are willing to pay out handsome rewards 
for people who provide meaningful original information um, that helps the SEC bring a case and helps uh, uh, other government agencies bring related actions. Um, so the award that pushed the SEC over the $1 billion uh, mark, um, we specifically want to talk about um, there are actually two of them that they announced. One was a $110 million award, as well as a $4 million award to another whistleblower. Um, the SEC made it clear that the $110 million award was the second highest award in the program's history, um, a mere $4 million off from the $114 million award in October 2020. Um, you know, so we're talking big numbers here. Or we're talking about an agency that is 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 advertising this, right? This is a press release that they're putting out there for the legal and other media to pick up. Um, so you can clearly see the SEC's agenda and the willingness to attract whistleblowers. So if you recall that the SEC under Dodd-Frank can pay out a whistleblower award of between 10 to 30% of the total amount recovered in an SEC and related actions um, for or to whistleblowers who provide uh, original information that, uh, that renders a, a substantial assistance to the agency in bringing um, uh, an enforcement action. Um, uh, so that includes actions brought not only by the SEC, but also um, actions brought by other government agencies, both uh, state and federal, um, that have a, a, a substantial nexus to the uh, information that was provided by the whistleblower. Um, here in particular, the $110 million reward, sort of the big one that we're gonna be talking about, um, uh, it was derived from $40 million award in connection with an SEC case and a $70 million award arising out of related actions by another government agency. So clearly here, right, the SEC is saying there is a benefit. It's not just the, the wards of our cases, whistleblowers that you need to be thinking about. It's also the, 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 the sanctions that are uh, levied in other government actions that you also want to think about as well. Um, when making a report. And so a couple data points here that are, are interesting to me. Um, one, the information that the whistleblower, according to the SEC, provided um, was in connection with only some of the misconduct that the SEC was investigating um, and which the SEC ultimately charged in the, in, in the covered action. So the SEC, sort of in plain English, they brought a case that was this big and the information that the whistleblower provided related to allegations that um, were a subset, but not the totality of the action. Nevertheless, by all accounts, it appears that the SEC has paid out this bounty based on the entire um, uh, judgment amount in that action. Um, a second point, which, which uh, I, I think is interesting, and it's one that um, I think bears repeating here, the SEC had already opened up an investigation and, and was aware of potential misconduct when the reporter submitted this information. Now, it's not clear whether the SEC was aware of generally the type of allegation, the type of uh, misconduct that the reporter was making, or if it was aware of broader misconduct in the company, but the analysis that the whistleblower brought in this case to get the $110 million award was something that the SEC hadn't been investigating. Um, it, it's not clear which of those it was, um, but, but you can see that it might have been the SEC was already sniffing around some of the underlying conduct that was reported by the whistleblower, but it's just that the whistleblower brought an entirely new level of analysis that the SEC enforcement staff hadn't been thinking of. Um, and so, uh, so uh, what, what we have here is um, the SEC said, look, the whistleblower provided uh, information that included 
and suggested witness lists and other charts reflecting non-public uh, or, or public information, but, uh, but included uh, independent analysis of that public information. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, uh, the, the SEC said that the information and supporting documents that the whistleblower provided um, saved significant time and resources and that there was um, you know, ongoing assistance, including multiple written submissions and communications, as well as in-person meetings, and that the, the whistleblower suffered personal and professional hardships as a result of the whistleblower activity. Um, again, you know, th these are all points that the SEC has been making in their whistleblower campaign um, you know, fairly regularly, which is they want to encourage people who are putting in jeopardy uh, their professional and personal lives to whistleblow. They want to reward that. Um, as for the information provided, it wasn't true non-public information. According to the SEC, it was derived from a host of publicly available sources, which um, the whistleblower here used to the SEC's words, perform independent analysis of that information, and then provided that independent analysis to the SEC. Specifically, the SEC said that um, claimant, the claimant one they called, information was based on uh, independent analysis, which is a constituent element of the original information requirement uh, under the Dodd-Frank whistleblower program. Um, the SEC said claimant one utilized publicly available information in a way that went beyond the information itself and afforded the commission with important insights into the extent of the company's misconduct, as well as other relevant conduct. Additionally, the whistleblower's information was, quote, derived from multiple sources that were not readily identified and accessed by members of the public without special, specialized knowledge, unusual effort, or substantial cost. Moreover, according to the SEC, the sources of the whistleblower, the, the, the sources that the whistleblower cultivated um, raised a strong inference of a securities law violation that was not otherwise reasonably inferable from any of the sources individually. And that the, the, the whistleblower's own examination, evaluation, and analysis contributed significant independent information that bridged the gap between publicly available information and the possible securities violation that the commission and the other agencies were investigating. Right. So it sounds to me, you know, I'm like, who does this sound like? It sounds a lot like uh, Harry Markopoulos, if you remember that, the, 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 the Madoff whistleblower, right? I'm sort of, I was, as I was reading this, this is somebody that appears to have had incredible insight into a particular industry and industry practice and used his or her analysis and insight that they have to basically go out and glean under kind of a mosaic theory, right? I'm mixing and mashing, you know, securities law concept, but, but take a piece of information here, piece of information from there, all publicly information, put it together, but then use the brain power that that person has, that independent analysis to glue it all together and tell a story that wasn't obvious, not only to, to you know, the, the public as a whole, but frankly, probably wasn't obvious to the SEC without substantial um, time and expense in doing that investigation on their own. So you can see here what the SEC is doing, right? If you want to sort of be just truly Machiavellian about it, they're saying, look, if you have the wherewithal to go out and comb the, the internet for and, and, and other public sources for information and put it together that, uh, that can present a cognizable theory of a securities law violation, we, the SEC, are open for business. Bring it to us. This isn't an insider. 
This isn't that traditional whistleblower, right, that we usually see someone, a, a former employee or a former, um, you know, we, we've seen people that are affiliated with accounting firms, right, somebody that has insight into the business that they're reporting on. This appears to have been an outsider. By, by all accounts. Um, and, and it's interesting for folks to remember that whistleblowers can be both insiders and outsiders. And the SEC is very much willing to pay outsiders who go through the sweat equity of putting the mosaic together and telling a story that isn't obvious to others. Um, and then- And that, that makes sense, right, Jerome? In a way, yeah. it does make sense because in insider trading cases, for example, a lot of it really is that kind of circumstantial evidence. There's a pattern and you put the pattern together in a certain way and it makes clear what's going on. That has value. Now, presumably that's what the SEC staff should be doing is their full-time job already. Um, what they don't have access to is the inside information, which is why we think of the whistleblower as the insider who's disclosing some sort of evidence. But if somebody can do this in a way that they're not Yeah. Did I get that right? We, yeah, we had a glitch there for a second, but I, I got the I got the gist of your question. And yes, you know, so our reporting this isn't suggesting that this is a a um, a sort of uh, you know off the beaten path approach being taken by the SEC that is not founded in law or the regulation. The contrary, it's obvious that this is part of the overall whistleblower program was always intended to be a part of it, right? Let's keep in mind, Markopoulos is the one that basically was the genesis of the whistleblower provision and Dodd-Frank. And, and he, he fits, I'm probably not perfectly squarely, but close enough into these, in, in, into this fact pattern that you can see this is exactly what was intended from the beginning. And while the SEC, yes, the SEC enforcement lawyers, this is their job. But the reality is somebody who has incredible in-depth knowledge about a particular industry um, can oftentimes provide information that a typical lawyer at the SEC wouldn't appreciate because frankly, they, they just, they're not trained in that area, right? That's why the SEC enforcement lawyers have accountants in enforcement to help them because the lawyers aren't accountants and they need people to help them under, understand and look at spreadsheets and balance sheets in a way that, and then translate it back into a way that the lawyer can think about. So none of this is new or sort of um, you know, particularly novel, but it, it, it is, I think, an, an, an important reminder that the SEC is, is a welcoming party for whistleblowers. And then I'm going to wrap up real quickly talking about the uh, Diacar uh, Malu insider trading case. And we had a we had a tech glitch there. I'm not sure what's going on, but we'll just keep moving on. Uh, it's an insider trading case um, uh, brought last week, specifically a tipper tippy case. Your standard tipper tippy case, for those of you who don't know, typically involves a traditional corporate insider who has a fiduciary duty to that employer to not share material non-public information with others for improper purposes. And that person shares or tips the material non-public information about their employer's stock to a third party, it's usually a friend or a family member, in exchange for some type of pecuniary benefit. 
um, that third party who's required to know that the tipper shared the information in violation of a duty owed to his or her employer, then takes that information and trades based on that information. That is, in a nutshell, what a tipper tippy case. You can read a lot about it, but that's basically, you know, if, if you remember the, the, the insider trading in a nutshell in law school, right? That's kind of the in the nutshell version of tipper tippy. So in SEC versus Malu, um, pretty much those are the facts. We're not here to talk about the facts of the case because it's 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 fairly straightforward. The SEC alleged Tipper shared information about um, uh, uh, his company, his his employers' earnings information, drug announcements, and merger plans. And ahead of four public announcements of this news, the defendant Malu, the Tippy, traded options in the company stock. Interestingly, the Tippy is the one who was charged here, and the Tipper has not been charged yet. Although the SEC said in the press release that the investigation is ongoing. So um, it is possible that uh, additional charges, including against the tipper, will be brought. And that's not uncommon in SEC cases. Um, uh, uh, but what, uh, what, what the SEC's press release um, did talk about is, um, and, and did make clear, is a couple of points that I think are really the lesson of this case. Right, so the, the, um, the, the tipper was an employee at a publicly traded company in the pharma life sciences space and allegedly tipped information to a friend who used to be with that, uh, with that company um, or with an affiliated company, but it was no longer, was no longer employed. Um, what the SEC said in the press release is, and from what I'm reading, this information um, was detected. The SEC detected this conduct through mining of data and picking out trading patterns. So this isn't something that, that from what I can tell, was, was identified by a whistleblower or was identified um, through some type of thinner report that, that normally happens around corporate events. Um, the SEC has access to an immense amount of trading data uh, that they get through brokers and exchanges. And they've been moving to algorithmic analysis or AI-driven detection for some time now, as we've talked about the EPS initiative, the, the artificial intelligence EPS initiative that we talked about a couple months ago is further evidence of that. Um, but this is, this is another example of that. It's really just as simple as, and obviously far more complicated than this, but you know, if, if, you know, if I'm at the SEC, I say, Siri, show me all the company's market-moving data over the past year. Now show me all the options trading in a direction that would have profited from that news. Now show me similarities between the traders across the multiple different announcements. Those three questions, and I'm not a coder, <laughs> I don't do algorithms, but if you think about it, right, it's, it's pretty much that simple. And then they start teasing out similarities between announcements, type of trading, and, um, and similarities between accounts, locations, and then presumably they open up investigations around that. And that, that seems to have been what drove this here. Um, another interesting point is that we, we you know, Tom, I sort of, we, we sort of talk about, you know, bribes don't have to take the, fash, the, the, the shape of a bag with a dollar sign, you know, on it that gets handed from one. Well, that's exactly what happened here, according to the SEC. In order to avoid detection, um, the tippy paid the tipper in person, Indian rupees. In, for this information in order to avoid detection. He didn't give details about where those meetings took place or why Indian rupees, but, but, but the, 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 the suggestion is clearly that by paying in cash to avoid detection, they both knew this was wrong 
and still traded based on that information. Um, another thing that's interesting that the, that the SEC mentions a couple times in the complaint is that the tipper shared the material non-public information with the tippy through a secure messaging and calling app. You know, whatever app you want to call it, right? It's basically how my kids communicate nowadays. Um, as we all know, in the white collar space, these messaging apps are, are, are where communications happen. And both the, the Department of Justice, the FBI, U.S. Attorney's offices, and the SEC and other government agencies are well aware of how the messaging apps differ, e even from traditional texts and, and, and from emails. And um, we've been seeing this trend for a while that the, the sort of the, the written evidence, if you will, in a case moving from emails. When I first started practicing law, it was emails. Then you know, probably over the last five to 10 years, the texts have been it, right? And we now see it going to these messaging apps. But these messaging apps are, are challenging in a number of ways in that many of them don't retain the communications for more than a, a, a millisecond once the, once the communication is opened. Um, although you know, I, I, I suspect there are ways to retrieve the data through, through full-blown tech analysis if you have the phone. In most cases, it's very difficult, if not impossible, if you don't have access to all of the hard data, uh, the computers, the, the telephones, to retrieve anything. And, and this is something that the, that the government has been um, quite not, or quite vocal about, right? If you remember a few years ago, there was some DOJ guidance you know, you know, issued about um, you know, uh, encouraging or discouraging the use of, of messaging or otherwise self-deleting apps within a corporate environment. And, you know, th this is just more um, of, a, a, of an indication that, that, that the way investigations are being run and government investigations will continue to turn on the ability to retrieve or possibly not to retrieve this messaging app and messaging app communications. And so, you know, if you go into the DOJ, if you go into the SEC, you go into the CFTC, you go into any of these agencies and you talk about an investigation you're running, you have to have an idea about what you are going to say about these messaging apps, because frankly, it's the way people communicate. Um, and, and, and so um, in, in this case is just another reminder. Now, I think that they were able to build the case without these messaging app communications because they got some cooperating witness somewhere along the way, right? It's very hard to detect how they know about these messaging apps, but I suspect it's probably through some type of testimony somewhere along the way because they don't really quote the messaging apps. They just sort of say that the information was passed through the messaging app communication. So maybe they have a, a fingerprint that it took place, but they don't know what it was, right? And they're making the allegation. Again, um, it obviously presents challenges for the government in building a case, but if you are a corporation, or if you are an individual that's going before the government um, and looking to, to self-disclose or looking for cooperation credit, having your arms around this, and frankly, in advance, having a meaningful social media and app uh, messaging um, policy, for your company, what is permissible, what isn't permissible. Um, that's almost like a starting point for any discussion with the government if you do run into trouble uh, in uh, your ability to recover these messaging communications. Well, that's exactly right. This is one of the biggest issues in investigations right now. What do you do about, you've, do, you've done the email search, it hasn't revealed anything. What about their phones? What about the messaging apps? Now, this runs right into data protection issues that we're also yep. familiar with. And 
you've got to, as you say, have some explanation as to why you did everything reasonable under the circumstances, why the client had a reasonable policy in place. Despite that, we still didn't find anything. But you can't just go in there and say, oh, we did an email search. We didn't find anything. That just doesn't fly anymore. It did maybe five or 10 years ago. Not today. So um, uh, interesting stuff. And the solution to this problem has not yet been let's be, let's be honest tom the solution has not been because if it, we all know about the solution right People, you know, i'm sure there are some vendors that claim to have a solution out there the reality is the, the, this is still something that is a ways away from being resolved frankly if it can be resolved right i you know there's where there's a will there's a way but still um it's not something where there's a clear answer and, and let's not forget, for a long time, there were no emails that were accessible. So it's sort of like the government got spoiled by having emails, which didn't exist previously. You had to go into a get a search warrant, look at the documents, which may or may not have been there, may not have filled. Them. And in a lot of cases, I did organized crime cases. There were no emails. There were no documents. There were no text messages. None of this existed. It was you without a cooperating witness. You could not know what happened because none of this was recorded. So this may be forcing the government back to more traditional investigative techniques that they haven't had to use in the era of electronic communications and emails. Yeah, I mean, remember, Tom, we've always had burner phones, right? As long as cell phones have been around, there's been your 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 work phone and you've had your personal phone, whether you want to call it a burner phone, whether you want to call it a personal phone, that is largely outside the scope of your firm's um, uh, device policy, unless you bring it to work and use it specifically for corporate communications, in which case, it, you know, again, I don't want to get into data, data issues or employment issues, but there's a greater likelihood that you can recover those texts if it falls under the BYOD policy. But again, um, you know, using unofficial means of communication that are outside the reach of your employer and the government is not new. Um, but these messaging apps are a particularly new way because if they vanish like that, it becomes impossible to know what was said without more traditional investigative techniques. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, what's new here is that you are now able to communicate electronically in writing in a way that is not recoverable. So in the old days, you know, the kind of mob case I was talking about, they didn't communicate through writing. And so there was, yeah. they didn't enjoy that option. But then, you know, now what we're talking about is a situation in which you have the written communications, but they're not preserved. So you get the uh, the people who are engaged in these schemes get the best of both worlds. They get to have written communications, but not in a way that could incriminate them down the road. And that's why this is so challenging. Yep. 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 All right. Well, that dog barking is a sign we should end right now. Uh, I'm great. <laughs> he agrees great, with us. <laughs> great. Great. Uh, Great subject as always. That's the Amazon or the mail, the, the mail person. Um, take care, guys. Keep the comments and feedback coming. Bye, guys. Bye. We're off.